Stinky stuff is your milieu, okay? This is your deal. You're an underachievement nexus in the universe. It'll always be like this. And this is episode 11 of They're All Going to Laugh at Him. And I am Alex Sprague. I'm Jess Geyer. This is a podcast where we are watching all 60 now Adam Sandler and Adam Sandler adjacent films. And what did we watch today, Alex? Joe Dierte. Joe Dierte. I churched Dierte. it up a little. <laughs> yes. Um, this movie, Joe Dirt, stars David Spade. It does not have Adam Sandler in it, um, but it is made by Happy Mass and Productions and has a few references to Adam Sandler movies um, and is definitely an important part of the Sandlerverse. Yeah. Tell, tell us about the Sandlair. Yes, the Sandlair. For this movie, the Sandlair is only one star. It's made by Happy Madison Productions, but it wasn't written by Adam Sandler, and it doesn't star Adam Sandler. So while it is important, because it's made by Adam Sandler's uh, company, that's where the importance kind of ends. This is probably a bit more of a hands-off movie. Yeah, it really doesn't feel like an Adam Sandler film to me. Honestly, it... it... It does in a way because it deals with an underdog, but just the way that it's filmed entirely doesn't feel like an Adam Sandler movie to me. As someone who's watched now 10 Adam Sandler movies in a row. And I think part of it comes from um, the fact that David Spade is always alone in this movie. Yeah. And I think that's a lot to do with, um, I mean, Chris Farley obviously has died at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. David Spade did Black Sheep with Chris Farley and uh, one or two other movies with him. Chris Farley was like Adam Sandler, one of his best friends. And that buddy is missing in this movie pretty hard, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't think of another movie where, like in in the canon that we've watched so far. Yeah, that they just have no one constantly there for them. Yeah. At least in some form. Yeah, um... Past that, though, I think that's something we're going to get into a lot more uh, after some recaps. Yeah. I did end up laughing in this movie 27 times. That's not bad. Now. But you did laugh just seeing Christopher Walken. He came on screen and you just laughed. It is a weakness of mine. Christopher Walken, in any role ever, is perfect. And I laugh through the entire thing. (laughs) I think 15 of my 27 laughs came from his lines. And that's not great because he's not on screen all that long. (laughs) I'm sorry. I was was remembering him saying stuff that made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I I honestly think like few things in the world bring me as much joy as Christopher Walken as a being. (laughs) Like, which which is a wild thing. That is kind of wild. Yeah, I didn't laugh that much in this movie. I actually found it pretty enjoyable, though. Mm-hmm. I, the weirdest thing in this movie for me is, in my memory, this movie is long, and it's, like, spanning a lot more stuff. I haven't seen it in a long time, but, like, it's a 90-minute movie, and I, uh, it's interesting the journey you go on in the 90 minutes, I guess. Yeah, it's, this one, though, is more like a coming-of-age tale in a much different way. It's 25 years long. Yeah. 
there's a lot of stuff that's covered and Mm -hmm. it does a lot of what's a good way to say this there are a lot of vignettes almost in this movie Mm -hmm. if it were a novel i think it would be written as an epistolary novel where it's written as a series of letters or documents oh yeah i could see that yeah do you want me to do a plot recap first i want you to guess because uh i know i'm positive on this movie i think you are too right yeah what do you think the critics rotten tomato score is on this movie i think that it actually i think the critics liked it better than little nikki so i'm going to say 40 percent. it is a fucking 11 oh no right like (laughs) come on it's not an 11 i can see that 11 Come on. And then it has to be like, I guess, mid-60s for audience then? Yeah, 64. Okay. Or 63, sorry. I'll point out too, like, there is 323,000 audience ratings. So, like, it's a 63. They have they have dialed it in at this point. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even the... One, one of the guys who gave this movie a 0 out of 5... Made a reference to South Park in it, but like not saying this is South Park humor. And they just made a straight up reference to South Park. And I'm like, okay. They made a reference to the, the robot that makes Adam Sandler movies that Carmen plays. But I'm just like, how how do you un- know South Park references, but you give a this movie a zero? Hey, this movie is not sophisticated. It's not yeah. super great. It's not even very well done. I mean, it has Kid yeah. Rock in it, for Christ's sake. As the villain. Yeah, which is but what it he is. still has a minute. I mean, true. I find this interesting that it is well-liked in the country music channel. <laughs> when I was looking this up, it is playing six times this month on that uh, TV channel. Because it's pandemic time comfort food. Maybe. <laughs> I have a feeling, based on how much I saw this on Comedy Central as a child, it's been playing straight through since 2001. I think it's because of how the movie is set up and with the framing device, because it has all those little vignettes you can stop and watch in, and you understand everything that's going on in the movie. It feeds you the plot in every Mm -hmm. single section. It tells you exactly what's happening. That's true. Uh, That is a bonus for commercial time anyway let's recap the movie real quick yeah so i'm ready to start talking about what this is really about yeah joe dirt played by david spade is working as a janitor at a radio station uh his odd look he has a, a mullet and you know he looks like he looks like he lives in a trailer park essentially uh, it gets him attention so he's brought to the radio station host xander kelly played by dennis miller now we've mentioned dennis miller before alex do you want to tell us the context Yeah, Dennis Miller is the comedian who originally found Adam Sandler and brought him to SNL, Mm -hmm. which is mirrored in a way in this movie by him finding this person walking around and bringing him to the radio to tell his story. We'll probably get more into that later. Yeah. Well, Joder tells his life story on air. Xander is constantly insulting him, calling him white trash, calling him gay saying all this really demeaning stuff to him. That quote I started the show with is from Xander's point of view. Yes. And keep in mind, this all happens without anybody really knowing him at all. 
It's yes. just based on first impressions. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe Dirt tells the story of how he was lost as a child at the Grand Canyon. And after going through a few foster homes and a juvenile home, he basically grew up alone. Uh, as an adult, he wished upon a shooting star, which turned out to be a frozen hunk of poo from an airplane. He ends up at a town called Silvertown, where he meets Charlie, a dog, and Brandy, who's played by Brittany Daniel. Brandy's dad is an asshole, and so is Robbie. Robbie is played by Kid Rock, and Robbie wants to marry Brandy. Everyone except Charlie and Brandy are jerks to Joe. Like, literally everyone else sucks. Sadly, Charlie is shot by Brandy's dad um, after a railroad accident. That was not the that dog's fault. That was in fault. no way. That, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Joe goes off to find his family because it was Charlie that really kept him from feeling so lonely. Mm-hmm. Joe goes through a series of mishaps while working blue collar jobs. Um, right as it seems like he's having lucky breaks, something bad happens to him. Usually it involves him getting hurt, hitting his head. Along the way, he meets Kicking Wing, played by Adam Beach, a Native American man who wants to be a veterinarian, but in the meantime runs a fireworks store. Um, He meets him because he wants a quote-unquote Indian tracker, like in the movies. Which, uh, strangely enough, uh, the character Kicking Wing says he was a tracker, basically, but there's no longer a market for it, and it's not something he can get paid to do anymore. Yeah. At this fireworks stand, they find what Joe believes to be an atom bomb, and he uses it to threaten the Grand Canyon tour guide to give him a list of everyone who took a tour on the day that he was lost. Well, I guess like the bus people. Mm. Turns out the bomb was a septic tank, though. And this is where my favorite line in the whole movie, I got the poo on me. It's <laughs> a good line. It's a very good line. Uh, in his quest to find leads on his parents, he's kidnapped. Joe is kidnapped by Buffalo Bob, played by Brian Thompson. Yes, it is a Silence of the Lambs parody here. Yes, it, it, uh, just a one-to-one. It is him in a hole making him put lotion on him. There's not really a point to the scene other than the reference. I think there is. But, but at the surface level. Yeah, at the surface level, there is no point. Joe ends up working as a janitor at a school in Louisiana, and there he meets Clem, played by Christopher Walken. Clem saves a group of kids from a deadly mustard gas that was created in a freak chemistry class accident. Uh, <laughs> Clem doesn't want the glory. It's very clear that he's not really who he says he is so he says that it was joe who rescued all the kids joe gets on tv and he asks for information on his parents and then he gives all the credit to clem and then clem's old mafia contacts come and kill him except he's not actually dead but they we it is played off like he died for a while turns out he was in witness protection program but whatever Uh he gives joe another lead and then joe has a big break after being attacked on Charlene's gator farm. Charlene is played by Rosanna Arquette, but she's not actually credited. Ooh, the fourth one. Yeah, lots of Arquettes in these movies. So the big break that he gets here at the farm is that his real last name is Nunamaker. His dad had named him Joe Dirt, but that wasn't his actual last name. And he learns this because he's attacked by a gator. I don't know if I mentioned that before or not. Mm-hmm. So he's able to track down his childhood home, and he finds that his parents had moved away a long time ago. 
Uh, Joe realizes, though, that he's had a home all along with Brandy in Silvertown, so he goes back there, but Robbie tells him that Brandy has already found his parents and that she didn't tell him because she wanted to keep him out searching because no one wants him around. So at the radio station, Xander Kelly calls Brandy to get an explanation from her, and she admits that, yes, it's true, she did track down Joe's parents, but that they were dead. So Joe leaves the radio station, and there's a big crowd there cheering him on. He's become this huge sensation. During a bit on TRL on MTV with Carson Daly, uh, his mom, his real mom, calls in from California saying that she and her dad are, she and his dad are really alive. So Joe goes to visit, but it turns out that his mom and dad are assholes. And they're really just in it mm-hmm. for the money and that they actually left him behind on purpose. So Joe leaves and threatens to kill himself. He stands on a bridge and is ready to jump with a bunch of news crew cameras around and the police and stuff. But luckily, Brandy shows up and stops him, explaining that she was just trying to protect Joe from his shitty parents. And as they're talking, a horse cop lassos Joe with a bungee cord, and he falls. And when he, like, pops back up with a bungee cord, he hits his head on the underside of the bridge. So Joe wakes up, uh, and he finds Brandy, Kickin' Wing, Clem, and Charlene standing around him in a, mm-hmm. in a Wizard of Oz moment. They've all achieved their dreams. Um, Charlene and Clem are married. Clem has a new life in Silvertown. Kick and Wing has a bunch of successful fireworks stands and veterinary offices. And Brandy has given him a new contemporary wig. Which I think is just like braided cornrow hair, I guess. It's I think it's supposed to be dreads. Yeah. But it's it's not super clear. It yeah. is a very bad haircut. It's very bad. It's very 2001. Yes. <laughs> He also gets his fancy car, which had been impounded, that he bought from an old lady before having another unfortunate accident. And there's also Charlie, too, who is Charlie, the dog's puppy. They speed away in the new car, kicking mud up on Robbie and Brandy's dad, and kicking wing wing lights off a firework, and they all live happily ever after. So, which way should we talk about this first in our normal way of talking about how this is a story of a young homosexual man or the fact that this is a story about the entrapment and the view of Hollywood or um, the fact that Joe Dirt's dead. (laughs) I actually don't find the, the queer lens very interesting for this movie because it's mostly played as a joke, I don't think that there are actually a lot of parallels with it. It's most of the gay jokes are just derogatory jokes. There's a lot of homophobia well, in this movie. Yeah, and part of that, what I what I think I see in this movie from that point of view, I think since this is going to be the shortest part, we should just kind of get through it. Is Joe is set up right away as an unreliable narrator? Oh yeah. What's, what's the first time he lies about something? Well, he admits that he lies. Um, it's his second day telling his story. On the first day, like I said, Xander insulted him a bunch. On the second day, he tells the story about how he he meets Jill, who's played by Jamie Presley, when he's working at mm-hmm. a carnival. And he has sex with her and then thinks that she's his sister. And then, yeah, it's just some gross out humor there. But then he says, he says that that's basically all a lie. 
Yeah, and uh, there's a section of that where he, uh, I mean, the way he picks her up is by, like, flexing, and then he, like, says a one p- shitty pickup line, and then she's like, you can come back to my house. Yeah, she's, like, overly, like... Yeah, she's overly sexualized. Yeah. And this is after, in the first day, Joe has zero interest in Brandy. He thinks of Brandy as a friend. It really likes the dog, though. And at this point, I would have thought that Brandy is a gay man. Um, and then there's an aspect where he's friends with uh, you mean Kicking Joe? Wing. Joe's a gay man? Sorry, Joe's a gay man. Sorry. And then he becomes friends with uh, Kicking Wing, who um, hugs him at the end. And Joe makes sure to tell the radio that, like, oh, it was an asexual thing. I didn't even see it coming. Mm-hmm. And then Kicking Wing says that he loves him um, when they leave. Yeah. And due to the fact that in this movie, we see constantly audiences around the world listening in on this. Um, Joe starts changing the story to be, like, heteronormative, basically. Yeah. Instantly. Like, he makes a woman show him his, uh, show him her breasts and all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah, basically, um, due to how Joe is treated, he hides who he really is, seemingly. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also a few scenes, such as when he's in a foster home early, they allude to basically sexual abuse to him. Which one is that? Where the lady forces him to be humped by a dog. Oh, yeah. Um, And it's very uncomfortable. That is super uncomfortable, yeah. And then, you know, he basically says he ran away and she was weird. And then he went to uh, this. And then he goes to Juvie and he runs away more. Um, and then there's the Buffalo Bob stuff where they have constantly people bringing up the fact that they heard he had been abused by this guy. Mm-hmm. And his, he always says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. That never happened. Yeah. But, th- but they do it over and over. There's a whole deleted scene where the crowd yeah. is heckling him about that. Yes. And then at the end of the movie, Joe is about to commit suicide, jumps, hits his head, and then everything turns out all right. Mm-hmm. In my mind, this is much more a movie about him being literally sent to the edge of suicide. Because he's constantly being abused by both the media, crowds of normal people, and, you know, in the past. Yeah. That's how I see it, and that's why it turns into a heteronormative ending. It's just, like, a really fucking dark one. Yeah. But like I said, like, I know this is wild, but for me, that's not the most interesting take on that. I think that there's a much different read you could take with him. I do, too. Yeah, I just wanted to get that one out of the way. Yeah, with him being a working class person and his pain and suffering being exploited by the media and being exploited by like people listening. Like you said, this Hollywood angle. I mean, mm-hmm. it starts off in Hollywood and he's telling his story. He really doesn't have any input on how he's perceived because the radio DJ, the radio host, Xander, is going to color this in the way that he wants to it's very clear that he has control this entire time he has brandy's mm-hmm. phone number 
I mean, everyone else kind of knows what's going on in the story. They have more insight than Joe does. And every time we see him outside of the radio station, he's constantly surrounded, like in the frame story, he's constantly surrounded by news anchors. Even when he's going to uh, see his parents for the first time, he's surrounded Mm -hmm. by the news. When he's about to commit suicide, he's surrounded by the news. The only time where he's outside of the frame story that we see him not surrounded by the media is when he goes back to Silvertown. Well, no, really, it's at the very end when it might not even yeah. be real. Yes, um, there might be one scene where he's in his quote unquote room, which is still in the radio station, but he uses a radio station phone mm-hmm. to make a call, which would probably be recorded. Uh, that's fair. Yeah. Basically, the movie is told through the lens of media. Yeah, the whole thing is. I, I actually, the only scene would then be him and the security guard in the very beginning who talks shit to him. Like yes. That's, I think that's the only thing. And I think we see, no matter how you perceive it, Joe Dirt's constantly being shit on. Um, they actually make a point to equivalent him to shit mm-hmm. over and over in the movie. Well, he, he literally is shat on with the septic yeah. tank. And the meteorite turning out to be a hunk of shit, that is another like a piece of evidence of that. But I think yeah. it is really interesting that the media is exploiting this story for their own entertainment. They could all be helping him. And the only reason he finds out about his parents is because of this media presence. And I mean, the media is portrayed as pretty dangerous a lot of the times mm-hmm. with Clem needing to avoid the camera. And yes. And him being injured while giving a show at the gator farm. That's right. Most of his most of his trauma that actually happens in the time of the movie and not him telling flashbacks is due to media presence. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a good reason for that. I, I was thinking about it and I finally kind of put two and two together. There's this place he really wants to live and he tells everyone all his friends how great it is Mm -hmm. they make a point that no matter who he talks to he says silvertown is amazing i love it it's the perfect place you should go there it's kind of where i got my start so what do you think that means i think it means hollywood which is often referred to as tinseltown that's what i thought too yeah i think it's supposed to a little bit be a reference to comedians as a whole Oh, okay. Because who who gets shit on more in mass media than, well, other, you know, other than working man, I'm talking about, like, actors, comedians. Yeah. Like, people fucking hate Adam Sandler. They hate David Spade. <laughs> they hate all these guys. And they're, they're still about it. And then they talk about how Joe has this upbeat attitude no matter what he's going through. Uh-huh. You know, you can't, you can't keep him down. He loves it. And also, I think that plays into his need to seem heteronormative in front of uh, the camera or uh-huh. in front of the radio audience is because you basically get to keep talking if you do that. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, Xander's making fun of him in it to his face, uh, making gay jokes and stuff like that. And even though that's the person who's given him a chance, he can take it away at the same time. So Joe has to do what he can, play by his rules. 
Yeah, and he also has to make his story seem more interesting mm-hmm. several times. I mean, yeah. because if your story is not interesting, it also doesn't get the airtime either. Like, why Why does Joe keep going back to tell his story, too? Actually, yeah. I'm going to come back to that in a second, but I, I want to stick to, like, the, the idea that yeah. he has to frame his story in a way that is entertaining, otherwise it doesn't get heard. Yeah, and one of the things that I noticed to it is um, these little menial jobs he gets. Mm-hmm. Um, he is an advertiser. Mm-hmm as his first job for like a dentist and then a victim of abuse helps him out um, and gets him out of there basically. Yeah. There's a older woman whose husband had, who worked for the police. Oh, I wonder why um, (laughs) abused her. So she pushed him into a wood chipper and then she gives Joe a car for whatever's in his pockets, like a really nice car. Mm -hmm. His next job is uh as a carny basically like as you know a huckster keep them uh if you don't know being a carny is half an acting job yes and then there's well he works on an oil rig yeah um which he gets kicked out of the first day Mm -hmm. um his his only job that doesn't involve like presenting and acting he can't handle basically and notice the person who gets killed in this like who gets lit in fire because he pees on a fire and he had oil covering him i mean i think that was a fantastical element added by joe into the story to make it seem like yeah. he won even though he probably got his ass kicked yeah he gets his ass kicked by saber tooth from x-men and then as he walks away saber tooth kills himself by peeing on fire yeah but yeah, and uh, th- there's this important aspect for me where uh, Joe says, don't focus on the wrong part of the story, brother. And I'm like, I think that's like a very thing where he doesn't want people to be paying attention to the little things. He's just trying to get you know a joke across, basically, mm-hmm. or a little story. I found that pretty interesting. Oh, also, in that same oil scene, he gets his ass kicked, dude burns to death. And then as he's walking out of frame, he kisses a woman who's walking into frame and spits chewing tobacco in her mouth. And then she's happy about it. Yeah. Again, another to, embellishment probably as yes, him to, being an unreliable sh- narrator. And again, playing up the heteronormativity aspect. Yes. It's very interesting. First act played like a nice person with no sexualized nature. Um, he literally helps. Like a dog who froze his nuts to the porch, yeah. which I was looking for meaning in, but that was just a funny scene. Uh huh. And then has no interest in the beautiful woman. Act two comes around and he yelling that he looked down people's shirts, like had people show him their boobs, all this stuff. And it's it's suddenly sexualized. Um, and it's because after day one, he realized they were, you know, making fun of him. Mm-hmm. There's the twice they make a reference where they call him queer mm-hmm. and then he he says is this queer and hits and like pats his muscles and then says is this queer and pats his other arm and i i found it interesting that every time he his re- reply is like is my body queer yeah he he always though tries to use this macho violence to mm-hmm. prove his masculinity yeah i i mean it it is very much performative 
It's so performative. Well, the whole act of this movie is performative because he's performing this story in front of an audience. So, like, the thing is, he doesn't need to mention these times where he's being made fun of. No. But he does because it's important to him, but he, he wants himself to win instead. Yeah. I mean, it's this idea, like, why does he keep coming back to the radio station to tell this story? He's not getting paid for it. He's not really getting anything out of it except the chance to tell his story. It's this need to explain and to tell it truthfully, but also that that desire to be seen as the winner of your story, too. Which I think brings me to the liberal fantasy of this movie. Liberal meaning like a, a capitalist fantasy yeah. in this movie. This idea that a working class person who continues to try very hard has literally had to do everything for himself starting from nothing going through the foster Mm. home system going through juvenile home working all these menial jobs and every time it feels like he's getting somewhere like every time he thinks he has this giant meteorite turns out to be a hunk of shit he gets a fancy car but he's blown away in a hot air balloon all of this stuff happens to him that makes it seem like he's so close to having some success and then something outside of his control happens to start him back from zero. But it's okay because the end of the story, we know he's gonna, he, he's still, you know, positive. He, he still is this story to make everyone else feel good about themselves looking at him. And that's the story of the working class. That's the story of the people who are in the working class position being looked at as models for what hard work means. And this is why capitalism is so good. You can achieve the American dream. But in the end, Mm. turns out all that American dream really didn't amount to anything. Finding his family didn't amount to anything. Did Silvertown amount to something? Which I think probably Mm. represents the American dream in a way. Yeah. That's also... I mean, he didn't really have that great of a time in Silvertown. His dog was killed. People were really mean to him. The only cool thing about it was Brandy and Charlie. Yeah, he was homeless the entire time he lived in Silvertown. Yeah. He only liked it because the image, what it looked like, his first impression. Yeah, as he's cresting a hill, he sees this beautiful, what I would think of as like a uh, northeastern town, Um, even though I think it's supposed to be Idaho. Yeah. See, I think of it as a Midwest town. Oh, I, I guess. Yeah, just a small town. Mm-hmm. And he says, it's such a pretty city. I bet people there will be nice to me. Yes. Um, and they aren't. No. At all. Except for Brandy. You know, Brandy's an interesting character because she's kind of, she's constantly framed through a male gaze. Yeah. Um, with Robbie and his friends, for example, they're always talking about how hot she is. Even when the camera is on her, it's focusing on, like, her body. Her dad, like, bosses her around, tells her to go, like, work in the kitchen, doesn't let her bring Joe in to eat. And even the people at the radio station and the audience of the radio station, they're always talking about how hot she is. Is she too hot for Joe? I made a point of talking in my notes that uh, Dennis Leary's character talks about how- Dennis Miller. Des Miller, sorry, talks about how hot she is and, like, mentions, like, her, like, tight ass or something like that. 
But he's just going <laughs> off Joe's description. As far as and we know, just, yes. Uh-huh. And it's such a weird, <laughs> like, thing to say of, like, if I had, like, someone tell me, like, hey, this person's, like, super hot and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then, like, in my mind, I'm not being like, yeah, she is. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> like what is that? That's fucking weird. It is so but. weird. Yeah. I mean, she's as much of a character in the story as Joe is. She's the only other really constant character in the story, in, in mm. the radio story. Yeah, they keep going back to her. Um, we might even see a few small scenes from her point of view, but they don't really mean much. Well, the it's seen. She's always viewing media. She's either listening yes. to the radio or watching the TV. Or her voice is on the phone. She's disembodied. Yeah, and I, f- I find it very strange. The, the fact that in this movie, her choice is between Joe and Robbie. Like, she obviously wants to marry Joe. Yeah. But then when he leaves, she agrees to marry Robbie is such a strange thing because he's just, like, a piece of shit. I don't think she actually agrees. I think that's... Robbie is living at her house. They live together in the movie. Yeah. That's why I'm, like, Joe Dirt's dead. And Brandy, like, might have been trying to protect him, but, like, I don't think... I I still don't really think... Joe Dirt is a straight character. It kind of doesn't feel correct. Mm. Because it's just like, he plays it off being like, oh, she's too hot for me and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But then just like fucking goes at Jamie Presley. <laughs> it's, it, it's shown that he's lying about that. Well, he if says he that it go, was, he said that it was not true. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So like if, if he did want to, so there, there's a lie somewhere in there. Um. And then the fact that, you know, she comes out and says, I want to marry you. I want to love you. After they don't talk for, what, I think at that point, five years. Yeah. Because I think he, for some reason I figured it out. I don't remember how. Oh, he's been on his own for 25 years. Mm-hmm. So he was 33 when he commits suicide, in my opinion. See, I don't think that he dies during that scene. All right. Here's, here's my theory. Mm-hmm. Joe has quantum immortality. I love it. So quantum immortality is the idea that from your perspective, you will never die. You on your consciousness, you're going to be for, you're going to be alive forever. So if if you would die, like, let's say if you were in a car crash and you and you die in your perspective, you survive that car crash, actually. And it just like starts a, like a new timeline, essentially. Yeah, I think uh, the way I uh, understand it best i think is easiest to under be understood is in every action movie the main hero has quantum immortality and that's why they don't die they get a thousand bullets shot at them and through luck it doesn't hit them and a thousand other worlds they're getting shot to death yeah it's basically we're watching the world where chance makes it so this person doesn't die there are so many instances in this movie where he should just be dead Oh, like when he gets attacked by the alligator. <laughs> there's yeah. no there's no way that the alligator wouldn't kill him in that scene. And he just keeps going. And I, I like the idea of him having quantum immortality and just continuing on with his life throughout everything. Um, getting blown away in this hot air balloon. Um, all of that. Yeah, because even as a baby, he was born without the top of his skull. Mm-hmm. Which is like, that, that sounds bad. And they just put a wig on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I forgot, yeah, the the fact that 
they like surgically graft a wig onto his head <laughs> and then his hair grows in all white trash is such a funny line to me yeah there's also the scene where he trips over the bomb yeah and hits his head and then has a vision of a nuclear explosion going off killing his friend and he wakes up and he realizes that it was that all along like that's classic quantum immortality the other way to think about it is to think about it as a Wizard of Oz perspective. Uh -huh. um, and there are a couple references, actually, to the Wizard of Oz in this movie. Of course, the very end where he says, you were there and you were there, talking about Charlene and Clem and Brandy and Kick and Wing, like all of that. And his little that, dog, too. And his little dog, too. All of that is a reference to Wizard of Oz. But the first reference to, oh, um, Clem mentions that he's from Kansas, even though he's not actually from Kansas. Yeah. But in the scene where he is an advertiser for the dentist office, he is blown away in a storm to a distant land, just like yes. in The Wizard of Oz. So <laughs> so he's Dorothy. Or he's the wizard, because the wizard, in, according to Wicked, and I think in some of several other like actual Frank L. Baum stories, but I've never read any of them. The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's canon. He he got to Oz in a hot air balloon. The Tin Man is Christopher Walken. Okay. The Lion would be Kick and Wing. Uh-huh. And, oh, man, what's the other one? Scarecrow? Scarecrow. So would that, that be the Crocodile Woman, then? Hmm. Or, I don't know. I don't think it's a one-to-one -one reference, but, I mean. I mean, Christopher Walken, definitely a Tin Man. I think it's more like Joe Dirt is the wizard because <laughs> he... Makes everyone think that he is this really cool oh, person by the end. That's yeah. That's that's a better way to to think about it. He's <laughs> he's this cool, interesting person um, when really his life has been kind of terrible. If you go behind the curtain, yeah, yeah, I like that that depiction of it. I didn't really think about that, even though you know the hot air balloon should be a super big giveaway. <laughs> but you think he? You think he's dead? Yeah, I wanted to, to mention a few things about the I think he's dead stuff. So Clem, played by Christopher Walken, dies. And then it turns out, though, only he knows he's not dead because he starts describing his wife and Clem gets a boner, which Joe sees, which is in a scene where he's like, I just want to talk to him because like it's my fault he's dead. And then he's imagining him being alive so that he doesn't feel so bad. And tells him information that he would have known anyway. Yes. And then Clem takes the name Gert B. Frobe, um, which is just a, I think, actor from Goldmember or the German guy from Goldmember. Yeah. I don't. The advice he gives Kicking Wing to sell more cool fireworks. Um, Kicking Wing says he now owns 30 fireworks stands and it funds all his veterinarian work, which, yeah, because everyone knows fireworks, extremely profitable. <laughs> um, and then the crocodile woman gets two fingers bitten off, but marries Clem. Um, the two fingers she gets bitten off makes it so she's doing a constant shocker, oh. <laughs> which is definitely a purposeful joke um, and something his mind would think of. The dog that got shot in his childhood has given kids and made an identical dog for him to live with. It's yeah. just like he has a perfect life now. Oh, and then he gets to uh, get his old car. Mm -hmm. which is still in perfect condition and drive away leaving his bully in the dust. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a saccharine ending. Yeah. There's, it's so, 
this movie has a lot of weird fantastical elements in it. There are a lot of movies um, in the Adam Sandler canon that have a lot of fantastical elements. Yes. But this one seems the least, apart from Little Nicky, this one is the most unbelievable, even though the whole story is telling us to believe the story. I want to come back to what you said about him being driven to suicide from all of this. I mean, being told to be a certain person or or undergoing abuse. But I also think if we're taking it from the class angle, that he's expected so much to be positive all the time and to just keep going despite everything that's happening to him that's beyond his control. I mean, he's pushed to the brink. And I think that that's also very telling with the idea of the, the class struggle here and how how the media and how upper and middle class look at the working class. Yeah, I think there's a little bit to be said, too, about the fact that his family name is, I, I guess it's Nunamaker, but yeah. he remembers it because someone says not making yeah, and not maker. And like, that feels like a weird name to just randomly pick, like specifically a surname that means you're not a creator. Yeah. Like you're not part of the media class. But he, his last name is Dirt, like heavily connected to the earth. Yeah. And it just implies like this working nature. I mean, mm -hmm. there's even a scene where um, Xander Kelly says something about Joe's DNA being white trash. Like it's. Yeah. Your hair grows in like that. So you're so like white trash. Your DNA is even white trash. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone he meets along the way, too, is very working class. I mean, Clem's a janitor. Charlene doesn't have a good life on the gator farm. She hates it there. Her parents mm -hmm. were killed by gators. Yeah. Um, and if you've seen Tiger King, you know how not yeah. great living <laughs> conditions they have. Kick and wing. I mean, not only is he a Native American, and he's also a fireworks salesman who's not doing very well anyway. Yeah, he's, he's shown to be in a rough spot. Mm -hmm. Like all of that. Yeah, basically anyone he relates with is in a bad spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You you laughed at something, and I was wondering what it was. The Los Alamos lab part, <laughs> what is that reference to? When when he said that they should take it to the lab in Los Alamos, Los Alamos was the nuclear facility. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I laughed. I was like, ha ha ha, that's a funny reference because it's a nuke. Yeah. I wasn't sure if there was a more to it than that. <laughs> yeah. I do have one thing. Let me just read through this because I, I had a good thing. Oh, music. Yeah. This this whole thing of him being performative, as you might be able to guess, because I said uh, this plays on CMT, country music, television, I think, all the time. And the fact that he calls himself a rocker through and through. Mm -hmm. You know, I listen to Van Halen, not Van Hager, stuff like that. He wears ACDC shirts. He's all about rocking. In his story... He plays a lot of rock music, like Bob Seger. I actually don't remember. Eddie Money is referenced in it. Yeah, I know Leonard Skinner plays. Do you remember what song played in the one scene he's not performing? Yeah, it is. I'll give you a clue. It's one of the worst songs of all time. Yeah, he. I can't. He is laying down in the boiler room. Oh, Dave Matthews Band, right? Yes. Crash Into Me by Dave Matthews Band. This song not only doesn't rock, it sucks pretty hard. <laughs> and the second he's not under like the spotlight, 
That's what he's listening to. I mean, maybe the music doesn't exist in the world, even though there's some diegetic music within the movie. But like, this is what's shown to be his music when no one's around. And I think that's interesting. That's very telling. I made a note here that the Dave Matthews band sucks so fucking bad. (laughs) Which like, I rarely really shit on people, but man... It took me out of the movie how bad that song is. Yeah, it took me out of the movie, too, because I was like, that's overly, that's just too much. It's just way too much. Man, I hate that song. Oh, also, uh, a thing. While Joe's working at the carnival, he makes a point of saying that this is a business, not a UNICEF, which is a line a middle class worker gives back to him, uh, the person who owns the impound lot. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that that person is a middle-class worker. I think he's still working class, but I think it's showing the grifting nature of these places that, you know, they hit you with all these fees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, impound lots are inherently evil. Like, I've I've had one car towed ever. Um, They carred every tow on a block when I was in college in the middle of winter. They, yeah, carred every tow, towed every car. Twelve college kids had to go spend like a hundred bucks a piece to get their car out um because the sign was covered in snow so we didn't know we couldn't park there bunch of pieces of shit yeah if you (sighs) well what does this movie teach us about adam sandler because he's not here he's not here i guess it's his production company is putting out these movies that cost a little less to make little nicky costs 85 million (laughs) this one costs 17 million they're taking, I guess, a little bit, uh, what is it? They're, they're playing closer to their chest a little. They're a little worried, maybe. I don't think they're super worried. They're rich guys. Mm-hmm. But is this them kind of thinking we have to, to re- re- reel it in a bit? We have to make sure we don't alienate people listening. We have to make sure that our comedy's still getting to the basic person. And did they go way too far by trying to make a white trash thing? I I don't know about that. I I think that this story was way more comprehensible than Little Nicky. Like the the story as it was plotted out made a lot mm-hmm. more sense. I liked the little vignette action. I liked the framing device. I I thought a lot of that was very sophisticated in a way. I. I think that they took it too far back in not making a movie that was they, they it was goofy, sure, but a lot of it was just like gross jokes again. Which I kind of feel bad because the poop jokes kind of did it for me it comparatively. Did it for me too, it was good. And and maybe the thing is they 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 definitely tried to shove too much stuff into Little Nicky. That's just without a doubt. Yeah. And maybe this time they didn't try it or go far enough no see i i don't know about that one well i'm gonna say they got the solid storyline down well but they they missed on some of the moments of like like there wasn't like a really heart hitting moment there wasn't some very good callback jokes like there there could have been a little more to the comedy i think i know I think I've put my finger on it. I think it's David Spade's performance is a little Mm. underwhelming in the emotional parts. I actually think this goes back to what I was talking about in the beginning. David Spade is an excellent straight man. 
but he's not like the person who makes the jokes in a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Like, ha- have you seen the movie Black Sheep? I have, yeah. He's straight man to Chris Farley's jokester. I don't actually know what the other part of that duo is called. Is so good. Like, it, it's absolutely hilarious. Yeah. It works so well. There isn't a straight man in this movie, which is part of the issue. I think that's that's a lot of it. Like I was saying, it, it's a bit lonely in this movie, which is kind on purpose. But like, man, if he had someone going along with him instead of a chunk of poo, like there could have been some good points for comedy. Also, we just don't see what I would say is the more talented writers on this film. Mm. The You don't have Tim Hurley making any edits and pumping it up. Fred Wolf, who plays the producer in the film, is another writer. He's fine, I guess, but... Yeah. David Spade wrote the movie, too. And yeah. I, I think, like I said, I liked the vignettes. I liked all of that. I yeah, think... I, I think they fell on the comedy, though. And I think, like, you know, Fred Wolf helped write Black Sheep. You know, the movie I've been saying is so great. But, like, Chris Farley carries Black Sheep. That's why that movie's good. Yeah. Yeah, it would be great if his sister was a character in this movie who grew up perfectly normal. That would make this film so funny, I think. If if halfway through you you meet his sister and his sister's just like, yeah, I went to like law school. What are you talking <laughs> about? Like that type of stuff. Also, if like, I mean, I think they kind of failed on the the leaving him behind plot and the the found family stuff didn't feel super great no. by the end of it so i uh, kind of why do it would be what i'd say um, yeah i actually looking into it they had some issues with who was supposed to play their parents so i think that might have been an issue but who knows yeah roseanne barr was supposed to be right roseanne right yeah she was supposed to be the mom but she dropped out like very very quickly before the movie was start. Mm-hmm was supposed to be shot so they had to do like some rewrites and and also um i don't think it's uh her fault at all but uh this is i think denny gordon's first film she directed so it might have been a little much actually i i don't think the directing was the problem here really oh no the directing i think was pretty good the editing i think was really well done too but denny gordon up until this point has been doing a lot of tv it does feel like tv in a lot of ways. And that that's it. It feels like TV. I think this is the first movie. But like Denny Gordon, I, I actually know, uh, directed a few episodes of Sports Night that I thought was good. I don't want to hear people talk about how <laughs> or l- tell me about how Aaron Sorkin's bad. I don't care. I like talking a lot. So obviously those TV shows work for me. But it felt pretty. Honestly, I, I would like to see Joe Dirt. Redone by Aaron Sorkin. He he punches up that script and <laughs> they just it got it. Think about it though how Dennis Miller talks. Tell me that's not a Sorkin character. It is very Sorkin. He his is so very Sorkin. up his own ass. It's wild. You know it's it's interesting that you you say that the director was in TV a lot because while I was watching this, I was like, this would be a really fun Netflix mini series, mm-hmm. like a little limited series. With all these yeah. little vignettes. I really did they, think that. They almost did an animated Joe Dirt thing. Like after the movie? Yeah, but it got canceled, apparently. I mean, that's probably a good idea that it did. 
Yeah. Yeah. That said, um, this movie's better than Little Nicky. I think so too. And I do see a lot of, I see the thumbprint because yeah. it, it has an underdog story. It does go deeper than you might expect with some of the themes. Mm-hmm. And it has those horror movie references. Yes. Except it's not really a reference, huh? It's just... It's just a parody. The, ca- the character is just in it. I don't even think it's a parody. It's just the character. They say that that character was going to flay Joe Dirt and, well, you know, do... yeah, that's the same character, but Joe is the parody in this because he's, fr- he's not afraid of Bob at all. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, I took as him not being willing to to go through the fact that he's in a horrible ordeal, which is what he does through right. the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Not like a... It's also, that happy Gilmore, I had a perfectly fine childhood. Yeah, it, it's that, which is, I think, a comedy thing, honestly. I think that's true of a lot of comedians. Mm-hmm. You don't get too deep into that stuff because it's not that funny. Well, you either get you either don't get too deep into it or you turn it into your routine. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was better than Little Nicky, but I think Little Nicky was funnier. If that makes sense. Yeah, Christopher Walken, though, was really funny. So. <laughs> you just laugh when you see him. <laughs> That's the problem. You just like how he sounds and how he looks. Oh, man. I can't wait till they make that live-action Yu-Gi-Oh! film with Walken <laughs> as him. Which I'm realizing is kind of Balls of Fury. Which Have you ever seen Balls of Fury? Yes. Uh, good film. Oh, no. But, uh... Yeah, other than that, um, little details, they have uh, the coach who can't really speak in this film uh, when they're in uh, Louisiana. For some reason, Joe Dirt looks at Auto Trader magazine like it's pornography. (laughs) And I think those are the only, like, little things I didn't talk about in this, huh? Yeah. Do you have any little things that we didn't kind of go through? Oh, the clown stuff. Yeah, the the clown stuff. I think um, at the end, the mom is trying to like sell her clown figurines on camera. And yeah. I think that it's just another way of saying like, it's this happy thing that sells. It's, it's, the, it's the underdog story where the underdog gets to, you know, win at the end. It's, it's happiness and jokes that sells. Let's, let's ignore the trauma part. Um, yeah she says like no matter how sad i got about losing joe dirt i just look at these clowns and i can't stop smiling but the thing is she was never really sad in the first place so it doesn't matter how happy these clowns made her you know plus she's just doing it to grift anyway yeah i think it's just a good reflection of the media and the fact that like people love these little like look at this this person walked five miles a day back and forth to their job because of how resilient and hardworking they are instead of the fact that it's like, hey, how is there not even a fucking bus in this city? Right. And this is a systematic issue and why are you treating these people like dirt? Good tie-in. Yeah. That's 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 the tie-in for my quote. The, you're the underachievement nexus in the universe. No, Dennis Miller, you have fucked over so many people in this universe that they're having trouble getting anything from the dirt. This whole idea of life's a garden, dig it, doesn't work when people keep pouring salt on your fucking shit. Hey, we're in the middle of a very large pandemic and a lot of stuff right now. (laughs) Yeah. 
And but he does say it'll always be like this, which is true until the inevitable collapse of the system. If you want to learn more about the inevitable collapse of the system, you can check out our games at wannabegames.com. Uh, we have a game called Moonpunk where you fight an authoritarian regime on the moon. It has actual aspects of direct action and how to fight back against authoritarian figures. Which maybe you might need. Who knows? Also, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash wannabegames if you want to support what we do. Either this podcast or our games, or just because you want to, I guess. You can also find our podcast at Laugh at Him Pod on Twitter, or you can follow me specifically at Joska. And I am at Kitty Crusade. And Jess, do you want to know what movie we're watching tomorrow? I do. See, I can never remember. Well, it's another 2001 movie. Let me tell you, he wasn't much of a man. Now he's not much of an animal. Rob Schneider is the animal. <laughs> I haven't seen this one. <laughs> I haven't either. But How like, is there another Rob Schneider movie already? I'm not ready. Oh, man. Do you know the basic plot line of this movie? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know anything about it, Alex. <laughs> I'm scared. I read the tagline. This is going to be the funniest movie I've ever seen. Oh, no. It's just, it's just a man gets an organ transplant from a bunch of animals. And becomes animal-like. There's going to be so many misogynistic jokes. I mean, almost certainly. It's, it starts Rob Schneider. <laughs> <sighs> Please take my wife. 